Mr. Heller on the Outlaw Culture Radio right about now. Mr. Heller, how are you? Hey, man, how you doing? I'm blessed, I'm blessed. I'm glad you're here on a Friday night. I'm, I'm pretty sure where you are, it's raining like it is out here in Northern California, right? Yeah, it's starting to drizzle, but it's real cold down here. I just got back from several weeks in Miami and South Beach. I went down there for my, for my birthday, and it was really beautiful down there. I just love it in South Florida. Happy belated birthday. Oh, thanks, man. Happy belated birthday. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you're back here and I'm glad you're hanging out with us on, on, on this culture radio show and and um it's been a minute since we've actually had a chance to, to talk live on the air, but um you know, can you know, basically from the lines that's continuing to be lit and one time I you know, there was one one thing I didn't do last time I actually interviewed was actually get a chance to let some of uh you know, the fans and the people that, that was real big fans of NWA speak. So I'm I'm gonna give them a chance to be able to do that tonight. But before I even do that, um you know, I, I know we went over so much NWA stuff uh, before, and I know it's already in, ingrained in history, but it was one thing I definitely needed to say. I mean, you know, basically, uh, you are a, and you can will continue to have that legacy of what was created, and, and I feel like if it wasn't for you and all parties involved, uh, you know, hip-hop probably would have been uh, at, at a standstill back then. So I want to personally, on the air, with all these thousands and thousands of listeners, to say thank you for your contributions in this music industry. Yeah, it's much much appreciated, man. But the little guy that lived next door to me down here in, in Calabasas that isn't with us anymore, I mean, he mm-hmm. was really the visionary that right. uh, inspired me to uh, and pushed me to take uh, Ruthless and NWA to the limits that... Uh, that they reached. And and to me I always feel like especially for me personally, I mean, you know, I'm in my 30s, so it's I I've I've always was that type of person that wanted to at least embrace what hip hop meant, not just to me, I mean, and not just to what what kind of music was being put out, but just for the reality of it and the passion that people actually uh gave and put out and stuff like that and and, and I'm pretty sure you can attest to it too, Mr. Heller that um, that that's that's what they gave when they when they came and approached you with the, everything that they uh, what they started and and how you know that that journey went right the the hunger that they wanted at that time. The thing that that amazes me the most is that 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 generation that's out there. For a while, you know, I would run into people between their thirties and forties. You know, people your age that. Mm-hmm could tell me exactly where they were and what they were doing the first time they heard Boys in the Hood or Straight Outta Compton or Fuck the Police or Dope Man. Uh, But now I find that that demographic is even expanding, and I run into kids now that are 17, 18, 19 years old that are just huge, huge NWA fans that that really feel the legacy of... um, of NWA and and the, the late '80s, and I and I think too, um, Mr. Heller, and we're here live on Outlaw Culture Radio with Jerry Heller. That I think personally, to me, when it comes to legacy and the legacy that was left, when it comes, especially with music, because music, as, as we know, and we're gonna get into just some of the current state and you know the the problems that I feel like we're having now. Like, you know, I always feel if 
if if people will remember, like you said, the the date, the time, where you were, what you had on, what you were eating when you were listening to those songs you said, um, that will always be remembered. And and just for the simple fact that you met, you mentioned that there's 17, 18 year olds that embraced it and will continue to embrace it. To me, I think that's what defines a legacy, right? Yeah, I think that. Uh the impact you have on people certainly is one of the of the important facets of of a legacy that that just will never be erased by by the passage of time and and that's what to me i feel that we're we're lacking right now when it comes to to the music industry and I, i'm just going just keep it 110%, Mr. Heller. That we're it, it's the problem right now when it comes to when it comes to just the current state of hip hop. Because I'm looking and I'm trying to give every single thing out there a chance as far as an open ear. And I, I respect everybody trying to get money at the end of the day. And I understand that people, um, you know, they they have their own particular mission, and my mission doesn't have to be just like theirs. But when it comes to just the core hip hop values that that that's lacking right now. I mean, what's what's your opinion on on just hip hop in general right now? First of all, uh, from now on, why don't you just call me Jerry? We're we're old friends already, you know. <laughs> so we've talked we've talked several times. So let's let's just yes, keep it a little a, a little more casual. But you uh, got it. You got I think it. that what's happened is, you know, when we started NWA and when when we started Ruthless Records. Um, the business model, uh, of course, we didn't even know what a business model was at that time, but the business model right. called for a very, very um, minor investment of money into making music. And when you had guys that were making records in their mother's garages with, you know, those little Casios that you could buy at Toys R Us, Right. <laughs> you know, it just it just got to the point where you know, actually the tape would cost more than than the than the uh you know, than the studio investment itself. So right. when uh, if you if you did something that you didn't like, you just erased it and just mm -hmm. you know, just recorded over it. So right. when you're doing something like that, I think that that is part of the what I call the economic integrity of of, of hip hop and of gangster rap, you know, that's mm -hmm. part of the of the culture, part of of that business model, uh, if you will. And um, when you start having a uh, you know a, a Snoop Dogg record that costs as much as a Whitney Houston record or a Mary J. Blige right. record, and a video that costs more than and Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson spent on the whole movie of, of Easy Rider. I think <laughs> right. that I think that defeats, you know, what what I felt was not only the economic integrity but the purity and and street and realness, rawness of gangster rap in nineteen eighty seven. Because if memory if memory serves me correct, I don't think there was an NWA video that was a, a super big budget video, right? It was it was pretty much just you know straight to the point, right? Yeah, most of the videos we did were were basically low budget videos. Uh, we did do one video, I think it was for We Want Easy, 
that Robert Robert Townsend uh, produced and, and directed with a guy named Kevin Swain that maybe cost a hundred thousand dollars, which was which was a sizable uh, investment at that time. But most of our videos were down, you know, in the you know ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar range. And one of the most important things in in that established the credibility of NWA was when MTV came out and banned Straight Outta Compton. I think we right. probably sold a half a million records the next day. So, and those were the days when MTV wasn't, you know, uh, you know, talking about uh, Kim Kardashian and uh, right, right. And uh, <laughs> they were more or less still trying to find their way when it comes to hip hop. Yeah, it was and, still and it was just, music yeah. television, and it was meaningful right. and it meant something. But when they banned Straight Outta Compton. That that was a a meaningful milestone, and uh, we were so proud of that that they would that they would they would ban our video. That uh, it was a, it was really it was really something for for everyone at uh, Ruthless Records. And and I feel like uh, you 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 can ban it, but you can't stop the words that was actually being put out. So it got everybody curious, more or less, to to literally see exactly what was going on. Um, not just on this side of the coast, but also on uh, on in in every other ghetto and every other hood. Doesn't matter if you know if you were you know in the suburbs or anything like that. The curiosity just kind of got to the point where it overflowed, and 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 basically there was that that era, that phenomenon that just kind of touched base bases on on everybody's lives. And um, one one of the things I want to ask you too is because I, I feel like when it comes to your your knowledge in this business i mean you know you're 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 ranked right up there with everybody else that's been in not just from the years that you that you've actually uh done this jerry but just also just you know all the time the effort the the highs the lows everything in the middle um why do you feel like or why is it well this is just my opinion but why do you, you or anybody else feel like you know especially the record labels nowadays and you know, a lot of people will blame the the internet, or a lot of people will blame the illegal downloads. I know that's part of it, but why do you feel, or why is it the the assumption that people will think that um, you know the record labels itself are literally becoming extinct? I think that the the record labels are responsible themselves for that problem. I think that they became infatuated with this. 1898, 18, 1898 purchase price of a CD, mm -hmm. and uh, you know when you have a record that a CD that costs that much money, uh, and a, a young person, someone eight, nine, ten years old, has to, you know, save up their allowance for six weeks to to buy a record. That record better be a real good record. And <laughs> Absolutely. And the genre itself, I mean, look, rap music is rap music. Mm -hmm. In those days, it was people talking to beats, basically other people's beats, other people's music, like the George Clinton, for example. And right. um, most of these, uh, most of these rappers weren't really musicians. Besides mm -hmm. the fact that Yellow could play a little drums. I mean, nobody right. at Ruthless was really a musician. So put that along with the advent of the CD, because remember in those days it was cassettes, 
And, right. you know, a CD, the, the physical structure of a CD allows you to put 19, 20, 21 songs on a CD where, you know, in the older days of, of the music business, you could only put 10, 11, 12 songs on a on an, on a um, on vinyl and still keep right. your fidelity. Uh, when fidelity means something, I mean now kids think it's great to listen to a record over their phones or iPods or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, Absolutely. in those days, I mean the fidelity and the quality of the music really meant something. So you you bring all those factors together along with the greed of the the major labels. Um, and the fact that these are not basically musicians. So mm-hmm. you have you have someone like uh, that I consider one of the the better of the young rappers. I mean, he's not that young anymore. Like, but like Game, okay. So he comes okay. along and he has a CD with 19 or 20 cuts on it, and only two of the cuts are really worthy of listening to. And he's one of the, the right. better of of the younger rappers, um, mm-hmm. and. You know what kid in his right mind is going to pay eighteen ninety eight or even fifteen ninety eight or twelve ninety eight so what are they going to do? Along comes Steve Jobs, you know, down just a little south of you guys down there in Silicon right. Valley, and right. he starts iTunes and you can buy you know a CD i mean a uh, single for ninety nine cents or dollar twenty nine or whatever, I think it was ninety nine in those days yep, and it sort of takes the fun out of listening to a story. Now remember, the really great gangster rap groups, and to me there's only two. Politically mm-hmm. it was Public Enemy, sociologically right. it was NWA. So right. they had, I think that Straight Outta Compton had 19 cuts, okay? Of those 19 mm-hmm. cuts, all 19 cuts were produced by Dr. Dre. Mm-hmm. Um, Straight Outta Compton told a story. Right. It had continuity. One song right. led into into another song. One rap led into another rap. And um, uh, the same thing with Public Enemy. Now, you know, I as much as I love West Coast and I love NWA, you know, mm-hmm. I got to feel that, that politically, you know, Public Enemy certainly was an important force, Oh, absolutely. Important factor. They just didn't have the advantage that Ruthless Records had. Ruthless Records had something that nobody else in the history of our hip-hop has ever had, and it's a guy named Andre Romel Young. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you have Dr. Dre producing every track that ever came out on your on your record label, and you have guys like Eazy-E and, and uh, O'Shea Jackson and right. Yella, and MC Ren doing the lyrics and and rapping, plus with the political instability of of that era, <clears throat> it just the time was just right to recreate what really was happening <clears throat> in San Francisco <clears throat> mm-hmm. in the '60s. I mean, I'm a child of the '60s. I grew up with with Jack Kennedy. I grew up with right. Teddy and Bobby Kennedy. I grew up with a president who was a crook. You know, with a with an unpopular <laughs> war in Vietnam. I mean, I right. grew up with. Uh, well, I'm not talking about the Kennedys, of course. I'm talking about Richard Nixon. But right. <clears throat> I grew up with an unpopular war in Vietnam, with the the student radicals Mario Salvo, at the University of California at Berkeley, with the Weathermen, the SDS, the Diggers, 
And of course, you know, you got to give you got to give credit where credit is due. And the influences in that era were uh, the Rolling Stones mm -hmm. and artists like Gil Scott Heron and the Black Panthers. Right. So when you have those kind of influences recreated again by Public Enemy and NWA, mm -hmm. you know, a, a generation later, uh, it just was the time was right. Hip-hop has been there a long time. Hip-hop isn't just music. Hip-hop is, is graffiti art. You know, another yep. San Francisco native, Jeffrey Chang, wrote a book called Can't Stop the Music, which I feel yes. is the definitive Yep. It's the definitive book on hip-hop. My book tells great book. stories, and it's great, and I love it, and I'm proud of it. And, you know, it's a testament to, uh, to Eric Wright. But, uh, I mean, Jeffrey Chang, you know, I teach college at UCLA, and I teach mm -hmm. a couple of courses. I teach the Hip-Hop Nation from Kingston to Compton. I teach the History of Rock and Roll at UCLA. And I use Jeffrey Chang's book as a textbook, along with Don Passman's book all you want to all you need to know about the music business and my book ruthless um but those are all you know this guy jeff chang you know he really lays it out all the way back to uh you know the graffiti artist uh, jean-paul vasquad and uh, keith herring and uh you know the graffiti artist and then goes oh, no doubt cool cool hurt coming from jamaica and yep you know and the, the movement in queens and you know, I was I was there for that. Although I never could really get into East Coast rap because being an old rock and roller, because mm -hmm. look, you know, I was involved with the grassroots <laughs> and the Guess Who and Elton John and Pink Floyd and right. Journey, Journey and other San Francisco group, Lee Michaels, guys like that, that were very melodic. Okay, to me, um, you know, the music coming out of Hollis Queens was not musical mm -hmm. and then i hear what's happening at this little pressing plant down in old hollywood called mccullough records and mm -hmm. the people that were pressing there ice tea uh the la dream team the world-class wrecking crew egyptian lover bobby jimmy and the critters timex right. social club who were of course that's jay king from from san francisco again yep. but i hear all these these guys that are pressing down at McCola Records, and these are all basically very melodic kind of of music. When you listen to the early rap of of uh, West Coast rap from here, mm -hmm. you know Rockberry Jam, In the House, um, by the LA Dream Team, uh, Time oh, and Social Club, Rumors, uh, Bobby Jimmy and the Critters. When you hear Egyptian Lover, Egypt Egypt, with Rodney O and Joe Cooley. When you hear these records, Absolutely. and then you got the, the World Class Wrecking Crew. And Alonzo mm -hmm. Williams, who is the founder of the World Class Wrecking Crew, you know, I always equate, I always say that the World Class Wrecking Crew were the temptations of, of rap music. Of rap, they were choreographed, yeah. and they dressed, and they wore glitter and makeup, and they were cool, and they were mm -hmm. the temptations of rap. And, uh, you know, when you listen to that, uh, it's melodic. There's melody there, and that's something that I can relate to beside the fact that I represented Emmett Grogan of the Diggers in San Francisco. Right. I interacted with, with Huey Newton, 
and, and the, the, the Panthers because in those days, you know, music and the political movements and, and the drug culture and a guy in San Francisco who I think probably is one of the four or five most important guys in the history of the music business, Bill Graham, who died mm -hmm. tragically in a, in a helicopter crash coming from Concord, yeah. um, you know, I was able to relate to that. It was the one time in my life when being a little older than, than everyone else <laughs> made it that much easier for me. And and Jerry, you know you know why that is, I feel, and, and this is Jerry Heller here on Outlaw Culture Radio. And to me, I feel everything you're, you're mentioning, I mean, that's a lot of it is not just grassroots of just the, the core values that I always talk about hip-hop because the memory that, you know, I, you know every, every single person more or less that you've, you've, you've spouted off right now within the last five minutes just kind of took me back just kind of like to the essence of, to me, I feel like what music really was and should be and what it is right now. And to me, it's like everything that you said, you had the entire NWA album production by Dre. Um, you have nowadays, it's like so many hands in the cookie jar, so to speak. There's so many producers on an album, it just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel, this is my opinion, it just doesn't feel like a, a homegrown album or an album that, you know, certain people can relate to. And it, it could just be specifically, but there's so many, it, it's not as sacred. What, what you were talking about, Jerry, was what I always feel hip-hop should be. It should be sacred. If you have, when I say sacred, I'm talking about this is my gift to you, and I don't want people I don't know or don't respect or don't relate to to actually just go ahead and just, okay, you can go ahead and breathe on my album just because you're hot right now. And to me, you I know, don't think that's what hip-hop should be. I, I agree with you 100% there. And I think what you lose when you have an album with 14 or 15 different producers on it, you lose the continuity, mm -hmm. you, you, you lose the purity and the sanctity of the musical movement the genre as as it were uh because you just don't have the continuity and you you don't you don't tell a story so right. you know the songs don't flow into each other and tell a story just like a hundred miles and running or ethel for Zagan, mm -hmm. they tell a story and they keep you involved in that story from the first bar to the very end of 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 the record so right. I don't think that, that you have that anymore, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, album sales these days, I mean, you take a big album and maybe it'll sell 10,000 CDs and do a million and a half downloads and ringtones. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's, um, that's not what it was about. I'm going to digress a little, and I'm going to tell you a story because... Uh, once again, reinforcing this point that, that you made. I, maybe I'm going to make it a little more eloquently for you, okay? Well, you, year well, you was, go year for was, it. year was 1966, and uh -huh. I hate to talk about how fucking old I am, but uh, <laughs> I was on the road with, with a young, uh, uh, in those days we called them black, black guys, man. It wasn't African Americans, okay? So... Uh, I was on the road with this young black guy named Otis Redding, who was a little mm -hmm. older than I was, and we were in Paris, and uh, he was playing at the Olympia Theater, and I saw people in the audience going absolutely berserk. I mean, they were going crazy. 
And, you know, we were backstage afterwards, and I said, whoa, Otis, great, man, that was unbelievable. What a show. He said, dig this, my brother. He says, those people don't speak English. Right. And I said to myself, whoa. I mean, I had this epiphany, man. I mean, go to a, go to a movie in French without subtitles and see how much you understand of it. Here's a guy singing to these people in a language that they don't understand, Right. And they're getting off on it. So to me, music is the ultimate communication between people. And, of course, after mm -hmm. that, Otis, we came back. And uh, in 67, we did Monterey down in, uh, <clears throat> down in uh, Mon at the Monterey Fairgrounds, just south of you guys. And, you know, now the two important festivals of my lifetime, of course, were Monterey and Woodstock. Okay. Right, and they were important for two different reasons. Monterey, uh, first of all, Woodstock, you're talking about a half a million people, and you're talking right. about the greatest rock and roll acts in history. And that was the first time that rock and roll acts were able to relate, to have the youth of America relate to them, the counterculture relate to them you know, in a way that became meaningful both politically and sociologically. Now, right. we go to Monterey, okay? Now, I'm in Monterey, and um, you got Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, the Mamas and the Papas, Otis Redding. But, I mean, everybody in, in, in rock and roll was there. Joan Baez, I mean, all the folk rock protest singers, everybody. The, you know, the, the most incredible thing, and I'm just going to digress once more, Monterey, I mean, uh, Woodstock made the rock and roll movement important worldwide. Mm -hmm. Monterey, did something, Monterey did something totally different. What Monterey did was show guys like Clive Davis, David Geffen, Mo Austin, Joe Smith, Bob Krasnow, Jack Holtzman, Jerry Heller. It showed us that not only was this a great sociopolitical movement, but it was businessmen. And Bill, right. Graham, Bill Graham, who was the, uh, was the stage manager of the San Francisco Mime Troupe, Chet Helms, who ran the Avalon Ballroom, See, they were just hippies, man. We were hippies. Now guys like Clive Davis wearing fucking $1,000 suits and $800 <laughs> pairs of shoes, okay? You know, could right. see what it was to get down with people like Janis Joplin and have it mean something business-wise. And the minute that guys like Clive Davis decided they wanted in, then it changed the face of rock and roll. Now, right. you want to know the most incredible thing about Monterey? And I was Go there, ahead. man. And I was at Woodstock. You want to know the most incredible thing about Monterey? What was that? There were 7,200 fucking people there, man. Not a half a million. <laughs> there were 7,000 people in this little fucking fairgrounds, you know, who, who didn't know what was going to happen, who came and saw right. The Who and Jimi Hendrix. Wow. Burn his guitar, man. You know, 7,200 people. It was, 
it was the shot heard around the world. It was the Boston Tea Party of, mm -hmm. of the music business. So now we have, you know, something totally different happening in America. And it all happened, you know, on the West Coast in this little fairgrounds in Monterey and back right. east on Max Yasker's farm in, in Woodstock. And on one coast, it was 7,200 people. On the other coast, it was a half a million people. And it's, that was it's really... Funny how, it, it's funny how, Jerry, life life changes. Uh, it doesn't matter how many people, like you said, it could be 7,200 or it can be half a million in different, you know, different locations, different coasts. Um, you know, that, that effect or how things were just, you know, like you said, it's a life changer. And, and I heard analogy. about it, you know, I wasn't around, I wasn't around, you know, just going back to music history, it's kind of like, you know, what what you're saying is is what I'm pretty sure a lot of other people took away from it as well. I mean, you know, it was it was a, it was a, it, it was a life changer in a sense, but also it was a motivator too, right? It absolutely was. It, it, it energized a whole generation. It energized Aid Ashbury, Flower Power, mm -hmm. The Summer of Love. The diggers. I mean, it energized all of those people and invigorated. I mean, people came from all over the world to see what Hate Ashbury was. You know, they came from everywhere. And the, uh, you know, the dead in the airplane lived there. The, the Fillmore Auditorium, which only held 3,500 people, mm -hmm. uh, became the cultural center of, of music in America. And I mean, just to give you an analogy, okay? So now it's 1987, and Easy play, plays me straight out of Compton, plays me Boys in the Hood, and uh, uh, you know I'm faced with this incredible marketing challenge of a group called Niggas with Attitudes, man. Right. I mean, I mean, how do you think white middle class America <laughs> felt about that, huh? So, so I'm I'm thinking to myself. I said, you know something, man. This is a combination of the Stones and Gil Scott Heron and, and, and the Black Panthers all rolled into one for the first time in America. It's going to tell middle-class America the angst of our inner cities and what it's like. It's not going to espouse it like, like all the critics of, of early gangster rap you know, mm -hmm. would like to say, oh, man, they're talking about bitches and hoes. And, 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 hey, man. They're not saying that's what you should do. What they're right. saying is, what they're saying is, hey, where we grew up, this is that's our reality. On. Absolutely. This isn't, this isn't what we're telling you to do. We're just telling you what the fuck it's like. Okay, <laughs> this is our life. You know, this is our life where, where we grew up. I remember the first time Easy, you know, took me down to Compton and taught me how to drive in Compton, man. He said, okay, now, oh my God. when they see you, you know, you know, if you're driving down in your, your nice car, man, and uh, a guy lays down on, you know, in, in in the street in front of you, you know, just floor your car. You can't stop, man. <laughs> you know, don't ever, you know, I picked up one of his girlfriends at the airport, and we're driving back mm -hmm. to his mother's house uh, in, in Compton, and I go to pull in the driveway, he says, don't ever pull in a driveway because you can't do that, man. <laughs> they block him that driveway, and then it's all over. So, I, you know, yeah. he taught me about the reality of, mm -hmm. of what 
his life was like. And it was an eye-opener for me, although i got to tell you that I grew up on the same block in Cleveland, Ohio, that Bone Thugs and Harmony did. I carried right. a gun when I was 11 years old. You know, And, you know, I grew up in a very, very hardcore, tough place. Mm-hmm. So, but this was like, you know, nothing that I had experienced in a long, long time. Because, see, rock and roll wasn't like this. Rock right. and roll was about drugs. Look, the road manager of of uh, of the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane, this guy Owsley, Augustus Owsley the Third, you know, from from a seventeen mile drive in in Monterey, you know, from a rich family. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy was the chemist that really invented LSD. Right. Okay, so every time October sixth, nineteen sixty six, when they outlawed. LSD and made it illegal. He just changed the chemical formula, and, and manufactured, you know, and then kept changing it. Window pane, the, uh, orange lightning, whatever. He just kept changing it, and kept changing, changing, adapting the drug to, to get around the laws of. Uh, to get around. <laughs> right. So right. to give you an, an analogy, I'm going to finish up on Otis Redding for for a second. You know, so he blew everybody away at, uh, at Monterey, just like. Uh, the Who did, and just like Jimi Hendrix did, and just like the Mamas and Papas did, he blew everybody away. Then I talked Bill Graham into playing him at the Fillmore in San Francisco, which he just uh, killed everybody. I mean, killed everybody there. And then, of mm-hmm. course, he was in that plane crash and, and died, you know? Right, so right. here's this incredible musician from Macon, Georgia, you know, and Muscle Shoals at Alabama down there, you know, there, and who had wrote all these great songs, I mean... I mean, Otis Redding wrote Respect for Aretha Franklin. I mean, one mm-hmm. of the greatest, greatest songwriters of all time. I mean, his songs are Not still... too many people knew that either. Not a well, lot of people. He, I mean, you know, he was, he was a great writer in his time, too, definitely. One of the greatest writers wrote Doc of the Bay, Respect. I mean, he wrote all these great, great songs and all that great music that was coming out of Muscle Shoals and, and Macon, Georgia. So... Uh, uh, so we go now, now it's 1987, and uh, I got, uh, I'm faced with uh, songs like Straight Outta Compton, Crazy Motherfucker Named Ice Cube, and a band called Niggers With Attitudes, okay? Or uh, right. one that starts off, What the fuck is up? Who the fuck is he? Coming on the mic is easy motherfucking E, okay? And there's only one station in America with the balls to play that music. That's a little 5,000-watt station at the top of Alvarado Street in uh, downtown Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And the signal was so weak, man, that uh, if you were driving out to the, to the San Fernando Valley, where I was living at that time, sleeping on my mother's couch, you drove mm-hmm. out there, you'd get halfway there, you could be listening to Straight out of Compton, and would go right into you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. You know, the Country Western <laughs> Station would have a strong... Would have a stronger signal, so it would go right over the top of of KD, and you would lose it. So oh, now, wow. you, now you got these disc jockeys there, man. The mix masters, Greg Mack and the Mack Attack, Julio G, Tony G. You get the. I mean, these guys. I, I say that along with four or five other factors. I mean, here's a station, man. That's 
the only station in America playing gangster rap? Hey, man. You know, every night when I go to bed, I you know I think about my friends Julio G and, and Tony G and Greg Mack, and think about the contribution that they made to the music business as we've known it since 1986, and they were probably making you know three hundred dollars a week. You know, I mean right. these guys, these guys are really the unsung heroes of gangster rap, and nobody but me ever gives them any credit at all. And I'm right, still because friends you know, with all of them. I talk to Greg Mack all the time. I talk to Julio G all the time. I talk to Tony G all the time, man. And you know And, uh, and the radio zone, the radio portion of it the radio portion of it, Jerry, this Jerry Heller on Outlaw Culture Radio is is, you know, that that was that was important to the success of NWA. I mean you had that one one place people can be able to listen to, and you know how it was back then. I mean, if if a lot of people liked it, it was played again, and it was played See, again. See, today radio doesn't again mean again. Okay, radio means Absolutely. nothing today. Okay, yep. then then it was everything. Yep. If you can if you couldn't get airplay, you know how I mean, how could you spread your message? How could exactly. you spread the word without radio? Well, yep. there were some other factors that were happening then. Uh, for the first time. Uh, ever, cell phones were cheap enough so that everybody started to have one. So you talk to somebody anywhere in in the country, and you'd be listening to your car radio, and they'd say, what's this, you know, what's that you're listening to? So you had had an inexpensive mode of, 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 of transmitting these thoughts. Also, the malls, for the first time, we're becoming the social center of America. Yep. Malls and swap meets became the social center of America. So you had this exchange of ideas, not in churches, you know, not in, in at baseball games. You had it in the malls, man. Everybody went to the mall, and, uh, and you had this, this exchange of music and ideas. Everybody went to the swap meet, and you could buy mixtapes. For three, four, five dollars, the Rhodium in in, in uh, Los Angeles, and Steviano, yeah, and uh, we were selling records to these guys out of the trunk of, trunks of our cars. And this movement wow. was started as a grassroots movement, and that's why I say that that today we've lost that purity. And I blame I blame guys like Jimmy Iovine and guys like that 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 have made this beautiful, pure musical movement into just another part of a business plan, a business model that your stockholders are going to vote on. You know, that isn't, to me, right. that isn't what, what, what gangster rap was about. Do you, do you feel like this culture is, is slowly dying? Is it dying a slow death because of exactly what you said, the, the floundering record companies, the the lack of a connection that a lot of people, you know, the storytelling that's no more like it used to be. One one thing I always believed in, Jerry, was, you know, it, it you know, especially during the the early days of hip hop, and and probably somewhere it kind of lost its way, maybe in the '90s or something like that, late '90s and the 2000s, that you know, the storytelling was perfect. The baton was passed more or less. There was a lot of, you know, artists that you know helped other artists and so on and so forth, and it just seems like now it's a whole different deal. But do you think it's, it's, it's dying a slow death right now? 
Yeah, I'm going to give you one short example. You know, um, the album Straight Out of Compton, which the L.A. Times, the L.A. Times, not exactly the bastion of liberalism and of the Western world, right. called Straight Out of Compton the most important album of the second half of the 20th century, and Sergeant Pepper Agreed. number two, Sergeant Pepper number two, and. Mm -hmm. uh, we cut that album for $12,000. We cut Easy Does It for $8,000. So, wow. you know, is is rap dead? Yeah, I think it's dead. Uh, and I think, you know, and I hate to say this because to me, you know, I've seen them all, man. I've seen Pharrell and the, uh, what, did he, what did he call, what did he call he and the other guy, what did they call The Neptunes. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've seen uh, all of these producers come and go. But you want to know something? And this guy is no great friend of mine. Dr. Dre is no great friend of mine. He wrote a, a diss song about Easy and I called Dre Day, you know? Right. He's, not my, he's not my buddy, although we were right. very close friends for many, many years until uh, Mr. Evil Suge Knight came along. But... Mm -hmm. um, um, Dr. Dre did uh, all those great songs for the world-class wrecking crew. And right. remember the last hit that they had, Turn Out the Lights, the, the girl that sang, uh, the background singer that sang on there, that sang the lead part on, on Turn Out the Lights was Michelle. Mm -hmm. So he did that record. Then he did, you know, he did those world-class wrecking crew records. Then he did Straight Outta Compton, uh, Easy Does It, Niggas for Life, uh, 100 Miles and Running. Um, then we go and he did a, a record with a guy that I consider probably the best pure rapper that I've ever heard, and that's the DOC. Nobody mm -hmm. does it better. He did the Michelet record. Uh, then we move just we move along even after the records that he did for Ruthless. And he did The Chronic, and right. then he did Eminem, uh, uh, 50 Cent, The Game. Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy, this isn't like Pharrell, who was a big writer and producer for two or three years. Now, it's, 2000, now it's 2010, and, mm -hmm. and nobody has come close to amassing the kind of body of work that, that Dr. Dre has done, and like I say, Agreed. he's not my buddy, you know. Mm -hmm. I see him on the street, but, you know, we nod to each other, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but you but you give credit where credit to do. I mean, you know, I got to. I mean, his and... body of work speaks for itself. Absolutely. But the, th the thing that really frightens me now, which is the same thing that frightens him, is, you know, that they're dropping uh, uh, detox. Is that what they're going to call it before Christmas? Yeah, detox, right, right. Now, I heard the first single, and uh, that's the single that he did with Akon. Mm-hmm. I mean, give me a fucking break, man. I mean, Dr. <laughs> Dre needs Dr. Dre needs Akon to, I mean, Dr. Dre did The Chronic. Dr. Dre did Straight Outta Compton. Dr. Dre did 50 Cent. I mean, this guy's the greatest producer of this entire era. And see, Jerry, that, that, that kind of brings me back to what I was saying before or what we were talking about before um, as far as 
let let this culture be sacred. You don't have to have 50 million people on your album to for it to be a success. Or, you know, you come with a story, tell your story, and let the chips fall where they may. And, and you know, and like you said, it's kind of like Dre doesn't really need Akon. It's, you know, come on now. It's, you didn't so need I him think, before. And, I think that this album will either rejuvenate the business, which... Mm-hmm which I think is a remote possibility. Or it's going gonna, it's gonna to mark the end, just like uh, Chinese democracy marked the end of that era for, for Guns N' Roses after waiting right. how many, I don't know how many years for that album to come out with, with that album, which is pathetic, you know? And, and you know what? You got a lot of history from that because uh, that was the same reaction that a lot of people had too with the uh, with, with that it, with with the Guns and Roses. It was like you know, it's either you know, and and that's funny because like you said, the body of work from Dre, everything that he's done, and all the all the all the collaborations that he was a part of, and it's 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 amazing how the, this detox can either, like you said, rejuvenate or crush. One or well, the other. There's no gray area in this at all, especially nowadays. I know the next single is with uh, Eminem, so probably it'll be, you know, better. And and since he does produce Eminem, you know, that's that's something that's acceptable to me. But um, you know, we'll see. I, I have a feeling that this is going to mark the end of of the year. This will be the the, the tombstone of of rap as we know it. Now, you know, and Guns, I had, and Ro- and, go ahead, Guns N' Roses, I mean, Appetite for Destruction is one of the great albums of all time. 26 million right. copies. Yep. It's the b- biggest first album in, in history, unless maybe that Alanis Morissette or something passed it. But, um, you know, that's that's a big record. And, um, you know, I used... You know, for me, I said to myself, because I knew that we had, that NWA had the music. There was no question about it in my mind. I recognized Mm -hmm. that. You know, my challenge became a marketing challenge. How do you market a group called NWA, Niggas with Attitudes? How do you market Mm -hmm. them to to middle-class America, you know? How do you get people in Kansas, Minneapolis, Nebraska, you know, Minnesota? How do you get those people to listen to Straight Outta Compton? And I, I said to myself, you know, who are the really cutting-edge hip people in America today? And to me, outside of the swap meet kids, I didn't have to worry about the swap meet kids because NWA had those automatically, okay? Right. They owned the swap meets, okay? But to get the rest of America, you know, I said, what do I have to do? You know, here's my challenge here. And I said, you know something, man? Anybody that will buy a Metallica record, Anybody that will buy a Suicidal Tendencies record, anybody that will buy a Guns N' Roses record is going to buy an NWA record. Right. Okay, so, you know, that's the audience that I shot for. And, you know, who who were the guys that were listening to that? The surfers and skateboarders in Huntington Beach. <laughs> right. Know, the guys with right. the big boom boxes on the backs of their trucks, man. They're the guys that were listening to those records. And if you look at any video... If you look at any interview that any of those guys did, Slash, uh, Lars, any of those guys did between 87 and 91, you'll see them wearing a uh, Compton hat, you know, mm-hmm. or a straight out of Compton t-shirt or, 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 you know, a Raiders jacket or whatever. So, <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, 
the minute that they said that NWA was cool, it wasn't just me saying they were cool. Mm. You know, then they put their stamp of approval on NWA, and then all their audiences thought, okay, we got to get, you know, we got to check this out. And once right. they check it out, that. that's all you can ask for. Once you get someone Absolutely. to check it out, then the music has to stand on its own. Absolutely. It's Jerry Heller here on Outlaw Coach Radio. And uh, before I actually start opening the lines up, which there's a lot of people on the line right now, one question that I do have for you is, um, you know, and, and to me I think you said a lot. I mean, you know, as far as not just the history itself but also just, you know, I, I've, a lot of a lot of people and, you know, I've had, I had a recent in, interview with um, with Vinny from Naughty by Nature and he was like, well, the kids need their era of hip-hop. You know, this is their era. Let them have their era and let them go ahead and embrace what they got going on right now. And my whole deal is this. To me, you know, after thinking about it, and to me I think, you know, the 80s was an era for us, the 90s was, the 2000s, and so on and so forth. Um, my whole deal is, to me, as long as people keep it honest and keep it real, then I don't have a problem at all. But now, you know, with, like you said, the super big budgets and the people that, you know, claim they have these cars and this jewelry and stuff like that, it's just more fantasy than reality, and I just lost complete touch with that as well. So um, my whole deal is, do you feel like, especially nowadays, because I, I feel like, you know, of course, you know, Jerry Heller, well, the knowledge, um, do you feel like the, 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 not just the rap game, but just in general, there's too many, too many hands in the cookie jar, there's too many rappers, there's too many R&B singers, there's too many of this and that? Well, I mean, you got to look at the genre itself, first of all, the genre itself is people talking to music. So we're not talking about Marvin Gaye here. We're not talking about true. Jackie Wilson. We're not talking Very about true. the Supremes or the Four Tops or Stevie Wonder or Michael Jackson. We're talking about um, people talking to music. So that in itself makes the genre accessible to anyone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, while NWA and Public Enemy and, and groups like that are, are poets, you know, I've always said that, that, that O'Shea was the, the poet laureate of, of the rap generation, just like KRS-One. Right. And, um, you know, Easy used to say that, you know, he conceptualized, Dre musicalized, uh, cube verbalized and I financialized and that was NWA but um, you're talking about the people that 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 NWA talked about and public enemy talked about they were talking about it from a from a third person point of view because you know when crack came to our inner cities you know when these guys like freeway Rick and and Ricardo Crockett, and you know all these guys brought crack to our inner cities, and Iran Contra, and uh, and you know all that foolishness. Um, these guys were 11 years old, 12 years old, 13. Right. Easy was 13 years old. So obviously they were too young to have been a part of that. But mm -hmm. so now they're talking about it. They're the audio documentarians of that era. So along comes uh, Suge Knight, and all of a sudden the people that we're talking about, the, the perpetrators, became the rappers. Anybody right, that right. had a couple of bucks from, from banging or dealing or however they got it, 
Mm-hmm. You know, anybody that did that could now be in the music business because it didn't cost anything to make a record, a couple hundred dollars, and nobody was playing the records anyhow, so you didn't have to have used the traditional avenues of, of breaking a record that right. Elton John did or the Rolling Stones did or, or Journey or Styx or Ario Speedwagon or Van Morrison or Marvin Gaye or people like that. So it's accessible to everybody. And like I say, the people that NWA and Public Enemy talked about now became the rappers. Right. So right. you have the perpetrators becoming the rappers. <laughs> and, you know, obviously uh, it became oversaturated with, with what I think is inferior music. Right. Agreed. Outlaw Culture Radio, I'm going to go ahead and open up the lines right now. <clears throat> You guys want to talk to Mr. Heller? We're gonna we're we're gonna open up the line, so I'm gonna go ahead and start three four seven two one five eight six five three is the number. Press one and go, and we definitely want to say what's up to Mr. DJ Vito V. Vito, welcome to Outlaw Culture Radio with myself and Jerry Heller. What's up? Hey, what's up, guys, man? Hey, what's up, Jerry? How you doing tonight? Hey, Vito, how are you, man? Oh, pretty good, man. I'm I'm glad you're here with us on Outlaw Culture Radio, man. This is a fine Friday. And I got a couple good questions for you, man. Go ahead. Go for it. Okay. Well, Jerry, um, I know you wrote the book, Ruthless, a memoir, correct? That's correct. Okay. Uh, what inspired you to do, do a book of such magnitude, and where can well, you purchase your book? Okay. That, that's a, a funny question. You know, I love to answer it. You know, one day I walked into Barnes & Noble, and historically in Barnes & Noble, you know, if you wanted to buy a music book, you know, there's a little section way in the back of the store, you know, where you had to get down to your hands and knees, you know, to see the, the, the titles. So I walk, yes, into, I walk into Barnes & Noble, man, and there's mm-hmm. Jeff Chang's book on the front table. So I buy this 800-page book, man, and I go home and read it in one sitting, okay? I mean, I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't put it down. So there that's on the front table of Barnes & Noble. Also, we got, you know, the 20 biggest disc records of all time listed by, by Double XL Magazine, who have always been an enemy to me. They've never said anything nice about me in their lives. You know, so uh, of, of the 20 biggest disc records of all time, six of them are about me. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, so, so I said, okay, man. Here's a chance for me to uh, establish Easy es legacy, uh, reconstruct my own reputation, and have it at the front table of Barnes & Noble. So I got Simon & Schuster, you know, the second biggest book publisher in the world, to put it out and made it mainstream where, you know, where anyone could buy it. I got them to discount it, you know, so, so that um, it was... So that everybody could buy it, and you know, you can still get it on Amazon, which is, you know, which is really the place to get it. Absolutely. So that, that's what really that. that's what motivated me to to write that book. And I, of all the books I've ever seen in the music business, mine is certainly the most fun, and it's the most honest. And that's why on the back of it, you see all those quotes. You see a quote from from Irving Azoff. You see a quote from who's the most important guy in the music business, obviously. He's the chairman of the board of Ticketmaster, Live Nation, and Frontline Management. I mean, there's nobody more important than Irving Azoff. And, you know, 
1970, when he was a freshman at college, he wrote me a letter saying he wanted to be in the music business. I, I, I called him, I hired him, and flew him to California, and uh, he lived in my house and became the, the superstar. I mean, he's managed the Eagles since 1973. So, um, you know, it's, um, it's just those quotes on the back. I asked Ice-T for a quote, okay? So okay. he said, I met Jerry Heller, and I just didn't trust him. So okay, man. You know, if, if anyone's if anyone's gonna believe my, hey, that's my dogs. That's my dogs, man. That's okay. That's okay. Okay. Can you hear him? I mean, is that? Hey. Oh no, you're good. You're good. You're good. So I um. So um. You know, I said if anyone's gonna believe this book, because I'm gonna tell the truth about Dre and Q. I said if anyone's gonna believe this book. I can't just put the good things on the back. So I put, you know, I put that on the back too. Um, I put on the I put on the back that um, uh, quote from Will I Am. You know, Will I Am. I signed him at Ruthless when he was 16 years old. He had a group mm-hmm. called the At Band Clan, a tribe beyond a nation. He did a video for a thousand dollars that is one of the best videos to this day I've ever seen. And he could dance better than anyone could dance. He could write better than anyone. I mean, this guy is the most talented guy I ever met. Okay? And is still a friend of mine, you know, right down to this day. You know, he's, he's a good friend of mine. You know, he calls my wife and I to, to wish us well on the Jewish holidays. And he's just mm-hmm. a good guy. And he's an incredible star. Well, he put down without Jerry Heller, you know. I got to thank him. I would never would have learned about the business. He taught me how to protect myself, this and that. So I wrote good things and bad things. And then there was a quote I, I put down there. Jerry Heller is one of the brightest guys I've ever met. And, of course, that quote was from Jerry Heller. Mm-hmm. So I just put <laughs> things on the back. The only quote I didn't put on was from Dennis Hopper. You know, mm-hmm. I asked Dennis Hopper for a quote. I didn't care if it was good or bad, but he wrote... Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry Holler is a hard worker and a fast talker. And I said to him, Dennis, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> I, said, I said, you're the guy that did easy riding. I mean, call me a motherfucker. I mean, say whatever you want, man. But this quote is just stupid. You know, so, so he said, well, I thought about it, and that's what I want to go with. And I said, fine, I'm not putting on the book. He said, you promised me. I said, well, I, I lied, man. I'm not putting on the book because it's just stupid. It's going to make you look stupid and you know of course dennis has passed away and was really uh, of my generation i mean dennis hopper easy rider i mean give me a break he was the man so uh um you know i i know that you know i went around in circles for you but that's the answer to your question this was a um i definitely feel what you're saying and the whole show i've been listening and I think the listeners really feel what you're saying about hip-hop and the state of it and, and what's going to happen in the future. Okay, um, what have you been doing with your time nowadays, and what's on tap you know, for your future endeavors? Okay, so I, I teach college at UCLA, which is very rewarding, and it's a lot of hard work. I don't teach every semester, but I, I do teach, and I especially enjoy the class called The Hip-Hop Nation from Kingston to Compton. And... Uh, I, uh, I'm trying to make the book into a movie, which is a lot of work because I don't own the music, you know, and, uh, uh, so it's been a little challenging for me to say the least to try and put this project together. I, uh, 
I'm involved in a Latino musical movement in South Florida. That's what's up. That I think is uh, that the purity and integrity are still there. A guy named James De La Raza, and uh, there's a you know we're doing a uh, a project called SPIC, Spanish Poets in Control, man, S P I C, and uh, the first album is going to be called The United Snakes of America, and if you look on the back of a dollar bill, you'll see where that comes from, and I think that <laughs> that that this that this project will do for the Latino world what what uh, NWA did for for gangster rap. Wow. Definitely, definitely. That was good. Vito Vito, good looking out for the question. Let me go ahead and take Eric E notes. Yes. Welcome yes, to Law Culture Radio E. What's hey, up? what's going on everybody? Hey Jerry, how you doing, man? Okay, but Hey listen, as well as um Vito was saying, um you definitely spoke and um you definitely reached every listener out on the line, especially me. Um, I'm definitely staying focused on what you were saying. And I gotta say I do respect your respect your character and definitely how your outlook is on on everything, especially, you know, the whole past of NWA and um and the whole business world and every name that you mentioned because a lot of it's brand new a lot of it's new to me, especially because obviously, you know, when you're dealing in that business you deal with a lot of people and um and you definitely learn and you grow, you grow in this business. And um, I can't agree with you more about the feeling and the structure of real hip hop music, especially kicking it off with the gangster rap and uh, how N.W.A. did. Um, the description you broke down about um, record just just naturally and just very simply popping in a, a, a cassette tape in a tape deck and just letting your heart go and just rhyming what you're feeling. I don't think anybody can relate more um, to music than simple acts like that, um, putting all the time and the effort into it and trying to commercialize it. And when money gets involved, shit gets shit changes, and it adds a lot of, a lot of more. Um, it gives a little edge to the edge to music, and it's just sometimes you really don't need that shit. You just need the fucking pure material and the pure feeling on it and just to make real music. And I'm not, I, to be real, I just want to say I really respect everything that you have done and everything you have contributed to the game. And um, and as far as, you know, your outlook on, on the game and hip-hop dying and stuff, and, like, you know, it's dying down, and definitely, like, I agree a lot about Dre and what you're saying about producers like Dr. Dre that's been maintaining for all these years and putting out solid stuff and brand like when you mentioned when you when you mentioned about you know having so many have so many varieties of producers out there it's like it's a real big mix up it's really tough it's hard to tell what's really solid and concrete and what's just you know what I mean pieces people are uh, a broken up ground and you're just trying to find the right pieces like a puzzle you know what I mean just I appreciate to... everything you're saying my brother but is there a question there oh is there a question here um not really, you know, Vito, Vito pretty much asked anything I would have asked if there's any future works that you're doing on, but I definitely respect your grind in school and Great. stuff like that and teaching. Thanks, man. I, I do appreciate that. Most definitely. 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 Stay right there. Eno's appreciate it. Outlaw Coach Radio, let me go ahead and take another one real quick from Miss Love. Miss Love, welcome to the OCR with Jerry Heller. 
Hello, fam. I don't have a question. Somebody else have a question. Is that okay? Absolutely, sure. absolutely. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. you listening? Yeah. How, how how you liking it? You like you liking the knowledge Mr. Hell is giving off, though, right? Yeah, ain't no doubt. I want to okay, ask okay. you, how does it feel to be like a part of the first movement against the rap, as far as Easy E and itself, and what did it take to want to push it out there? You know, I've been involved in 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 every major musical movement since the 60s, you know, uh, rock and roll, new wave, punk, uh, R&B. I've been involved in all those movements. There's there's no satisfaction that I've ever gotten in my life like being involved with my partner, Easy e you know, from March 3rd, 1987, which is the day that I met him, until the day he died, March 26th of, of 1995. Uh, it was incredibly rewarding. It was a lot of fun, and once it started to happen, it happened so fast that none of us could even believe it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I it. understand, man. I mean, you know, we were interfacing with with Minister Farrakhan, Jesse Jackson, Dick Griffey, Don King, President Bush. I mean, the FBI, MTV, all the major record companies. I mean. You know, we were at every level of society. Three months into into Ruthless Records, L Magazine, E-L-L-E, which is the foreign equivalent of Vogue Magazine, which is a fashion magazine, mm-hmm. had a 10-page right. spread called Gangster Chic, man. I mean, the things that, that we were able to accomplish were just mind-boggling to me. And the fact that I was able to do it with my, with my you know, with my with my son, Easy E, and, and the other guys in the group was just, you know, was just very rewarding to me. And all the time, I have, uh, you know, these older women coming up to me on the street and saying, "If it wasn't for you, you know, my son would have been a drug dealer." And you know, you gave people an alternative, and you guys were great, and you know, all those kind of things. So it's it really it was a, an ego building kind of experience, and probably the most important eight years of my life do you feel do you feel nowadays jerry that um especially in the hip-hop community and just the hip-hop culture in general do you feel like uh easy's um legacy is 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 being held up under a a, a good light so to speak i mean you know because a lot of people mention the tupacs a lot of people people mention the biggies and 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 so on and so forth but do you feel like easy's uh legacy is that still intact as a well, I think one, I think that like... I've I think I've helped, you know, reestablish his legacy. The problem is that Tupac had a body of work that he left right. behind of unreleased songs done mm-hmm. by Johnny J and, and producers like that. You know, right. and and um, you know, Jimmy Iovine and Universal were able to exploit, you know, those unreleased masters. You know, right. when when Easy died and his estate went to some other people, and um, uh, I had no control over what happened after his death, I don't mm-hmm. think that that he has been exploited, you know, in the way that that he deserved. I think to me, Easy E, along with uh, Barry Gordy and Clive Davis and David Geffen and a half a dozen other guys like that, are. Easy was one of the most important visionaries of of the musical movement during my lifetime, and I will always uh, 
treasure and feel grateful and, and lucky, you know, to have spent that eight years with him, uh, bringing ruthless music to uh, to the world. I agree. I've always I've always thought that about Easy as far as you know what he was able to bring, um, you know, to the table. Not just from you know urban kids like myself that grew up um, living you know, not living that lifestyle, but being around that lifestyle. And, and to me, he just brought it full circle. Well, you guys did, of course, but, you know what I'm saying, for it to be exactly like you said, Jerry, like poets coming out, like, you know, I understand it because I saw that right down the street or I saw that a block or an and a half away. So it made perfect sense. And, and, and to me, I think that's something that I feel personally, Jerry, like, you know, there there needs to be, you know, like, you know, the day of his passing or his birthday or something like, you know, something in the hip hop community needs to be done more to to honor this man's legacy and stuff like that, too, on a lot of different occasions. Remember that the guys that you're looking at now that are the the icons of the of the music yeah, world. I forgot. <laughs> Jay Z, Jay Z, Puff Daddy. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, these guys were. You know, uh, Puff Daddy was was a, a junior A and R guy at Uptown Records. You know, when mm-hmm. when Ruthless was really in its in its heyday. So I mean, he paved the way. For you know all these guys that have made fortunes in in merchandising and absolutely uh, and other things other than music, you know that are music related. Um, you know he paved the way for that, and you know um, you know Boys in the Hood was, was the first important you know inner city black mm-hmm. movie. You know before that. You know, there was a saying in Hollywood that, you know, that a black movie couldn't do over $35 million. Well, of course, Boys in the Hood, you know, and, you know. Surpassed that, absolutely. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And absolutely. I'm going to take Singleton, one more. I give John Singleton credit for that. Absolutely. I'm going to take one more call. I'm going to take this one from uh, Cuz from the Lou. Welcome to Law Culture Radio with Jerry Heller. I appreciate it. appreciate it. It's an honor and a pleasure to speak to you, Jerry. Thank you. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Uh, one question is, if uh, since you've been around, you're one of the unsung heroes in the in the business, and you deserve a lot of credit. Uh, since you've been in the hip hop culture for so long, who is the the best rapper that you heard, or in your uh, I guess in your lifetime that you like? And also um, with Tupac, did you ever uh, meet him, or if you have, what was your thoughts of him? Okay, so. Number one, for me, the greatest pure rapper that ever lived was the DOC. There was nobody like him. Nobody could flow. Like, he could flow in with Dre's beats. I mean, unbelievable rapper. And then he got got in that accent, of course, and and couldn't really really speak after that. But, um... Hey, Doc, hey! So, um, and the second part of your question... Oh, what was the second part of your question? Um, just out, just our little coach about Tupac. Did you have a good chance to meet oh, him? Yeah. If you have, what was your thoughts of him? Tupac was managed by a friend of mine from Berkeley named Atron Gregory, who has TNT Records up there and managed uh, Digital Underground. Uh, Tupac was a dancer with Digital Underground and uh, was a very close friend of Easy's and myself. So 
you know, the rappers that we really respected up there, we loved Too Short, you know, and we loved Tupac. I think Tupac was different from the NWA guys in the respect that, you know, both his parents were Panthers, man. So he came from his rage. That rage inside of him was legitimate. He wasn't making that up. That's what he grew up with. That's what he felt. That's what he believed. And he was a great poet. He was an incredible, charismatic figure. I had lunch with him. Uh, I was wandering through the Century City Mall maybe two weeks before he uh, before he was murdered. And uh, he was. I was wandering through the mall, and he was sitting having lunch with some girl. He said, hey, Jerry, you know, we sat down, and we talked for a couple hours. He was an incredibly gifted, uh, believe it or not, gentle, bright, nice kid. Atrian Gregory is one of the really best managers of all time. I think he still, you know, lives up there in, in Berkeley or whatever. And, um, yeah, I, I just thought Tupac was really something special. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's you know, of course, the good die young. I mean, he was taken away from us too short. Uh, easy as well as a lot of different people and um you know the the legacy that 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 they're leaving or they they have left behind i mean to me it's you know it's going to carry on for you know the the for for centuries and centuries i feel personally and also like everybody has said more or less on these lines your contribution jerry is tremendous and you know like i said the book people definitely need to go to amazon.com right now to go pick it up ruthless a memoir by jerry heller um and also just um thank you just just thank you i mean you know and i i've you know like i said it's you know reaching out to you has always been a a a privilege to me and um i just continue i just hope i can continue you know just through the holidays and 2011 and and for 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 years and years that i can be able to let you know uh borrow your ear and and just kind of either tell you some some different things and stuff like that but i i i i always always pay attention when i listen to you speak because you do have a ton of history not just hip hop history but also every other genre that that people can think of. This man has has said it and done it all, and I, I definitely appreciate it, Jerry. From not just from a media standpoint, but also a personal standpoint. Thank you very much. Okay, let me say one thing before I go. Okay. Mhm. I say this: that my phone lines are always open to you. Okay. Thank because you. Because the future of our business is depending on young guys like you, who are on the internet. You know, because the traditional areas of communication are a thing of the past. It's right. guys like you that have to carry the banner. And I say this on behalf of of my, my, my partner, the little big man, Easy e and Jerry Heller. I thank you because it's you that, have to, that we have to count on to carry the torch from now on. And I say thank you and good night. Well, you know what? We need each other at the end of the day, and, and definitely, I will definitely reach out to you. And people, go get the book. Next Legacy.